Chapter Twenty of the Life of Thomas, Lord Cochrane, Tenth Earl of Dundonald, completing the autobiography of a seaman, Volume Two, by Henry Richard Foxbourne and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter Twenty, the Duke of Wellington's mission to Saint Petersburg in the spring of eighteen twenty-six, which has been already referred to, was part of a policy by which the British government materially contributed to the ultimate independence of greece its first result was the protocol of the fourth of april in which england and russia recognized the right of the greeks to claim from the port a recognition of their freedom at about the same time our government had sent mr stratford canning afterwards lord stratford de redcliffe as ambassador to constantinople with special instructions to use every endeavour to bring about a cessation of the war which should be favourable to Greece, and on the 24th of April, the National Assembly, at Epidaurus, had authorised him to treat with Turkey on its behalf, agreeing, if no more favourable terms could be obtained, to a recognition of the Sultan's supremacy and the payment of tribute to him, on condition that Greece should be independent in all its internal government. Those terms, however, were rejected by the port, and after a delay of a year and a half, it was forced by the great powers solely awakening from their long lethargy to accede to arrangements far more favourable to greece these negotiations however proceeded very slowly and before the dawn of greek independence there was a time of almost utter darkness the darkest time of all being the few months following lord cochrane's arrival Quote, vanquished greece says her historian lay writhing in convulsive throes in herself there was neither hope nor help and the question to be solved was merely whether the Mahometans would have time to subdue her before the mediating powers made up their minds to use force. That the former, if not checked from abroad, must speedily overrun the country, did not admit of the least doubt, but it was equally certain that they could not pacify it, for while the rich and timid prepared to emigrate, the poorer and hardier portion of the insurgents formed themselves into bands of robbers and pirates, which would have long infested the mountains, and the levant seas deriding the efforts of the port to suppress them the only branch of the hellenic confederacy that still presented a menacing aspect was the navy under lord cochrane every other department was a heap of confusion no government existed since it would be idle to dignify with that name the three puppets set up by the congress of damala none ever thought of obeying them and they sealed their own degradation by carrying on an infamous traffic in selling letters of marque to freebooters there was no army because there was no revenue after the fall of athens Romelia was entirely lost and the captains either renewed their active submission to rashid pasha or fled to the maria it was not however with an intention of defending the peninsula that they retreated into it their purpose was to seize the fortresses and thereby be enabled to make a good bargain with the turks or any other party that should remain in final possession. Nauplia and the Acro-Corinthius were already garrisoned by Runeliots. Monomvasia, the third Peloponnesian stronghold, yet held by the Greeks, was in the hands of Petrobe's brother, John Mavromichales, who, fitting out from thence predatory craft, converted it into a den of thieves. Reader's note, quote, ends. It is not strange that amid all this confusion cowardice and treachery lord cochrane should have found it almost impossible to achieve anything worthy of his abilities 
or of the cause which he desired so earnestly to serve yet he continued in spite of all obstacles to do all that lay in his power in fulfilment of his duty and even in excess of that duty he had engaged to act as first admiral of the greek fleet finding that there was no fleet for him to direct he laboured with unwearied zeal not only to construct one and to turn his unmanly subordinates into disciplined sailors and brave warriors but also to persuade the landsmen to cooperate with him in trying to withstand if not to drive back the advancing force of the enemy one day when he was at poros dr goss came on board the hellas to visit him see my friend said lord cochrane taking a loaded pistol from the inner pocket of his waistcoat see what it is to be a greek admiral he found it necessary to be always provided with a weapon with which he could defend himself from his indolent unpatriotic seamen having returned to poros with his prizes on the fourteenth of august he was obliged to wait there for twelve days there were no funds to be had for the requisite repairs and other expenses in paying and feeding his crews all he could do was to repeat his former arguments and entreaties for assistance from the miserable government at nauplia and the more active but still half-hearted primates of the islands he also made all the other arrangements in his power for improving his fleet and for carrying on some sort of naval warfare among the southern isles especially on the coast of candia and for fermenting an insurrection of the inhabitants of western greece who held in awe by the turks ever since the fall of missolonghi had hitherto done little in aid of the national strife but to whose support he now looked with some hope on the twenty fourth he obtained a little further assistance mr george cochrane whom he had sent to marseilles in the unicorn to ask for fresh supplies of money and stores from the philhellenes of western europe but whose return had been long delayed now arrived with a cargo of provisions and the sum of five thousand pounds which although altogether inadequate to the work to be done made possible some work at any rate in the unicorn also came a new volunteer on behalf of greek independence the schooner having called at zante on her way back mr cochrane there met prince paul bonaparte nephew of the great napoleon who asked to be taken on board in order that he might serve under lord cochrane this was agreed to and the prince a youth about eighteen years old and six feet high became immediately after his arrival at poros a favourite with lord cochrane and all his staff and crew he was remarkable said dr goss for quote, his good will his amiability of character his solidity of judgment his intelligence and the moderation of his principles his stay in greece however was very brief on the morning of the sixth of september all aboard the hellas were startled by a shriek and an exclamation ah mon dieu je suis mort lord cochrane and several officers rushed to the prince's cabin there to find him lying in a pool of blood and writhing in agony his servant had been cleaning his pistols and he had just loaded one of them to hang it on a nail when the trigger being accidentally struck the weapon discharged and a ball entered his body and settled in the groin dr howe an american surgeon famous for his services to greece and for later philanthropic labours being at hand came to his relief until dr goss could be sent for all that could be done however was to lessen the pain which he bore with great heroism through two-and-twenty hours lord cochrane had him placed in his own cabin and carefully tended him with his own hands at seven o'clock in the following morning he cried out ah quel dolor and died immediately that melancholy accident had a sequel which must be told in illustration of the greed of the greeks the prince's body was placed in a hogshead of spirits and conveyed to spetsas there to be deposited in a convent until the wishes of the father prince lucian bonaparte 
could be ascertained as to its internment. A few months afterwards, some natives entering the convent and smelling the spirits, but apparently in ignorance of the use to which they had been applied, could not resist the temptation of tapping the hogshead and drinking part of the contents. Prince Paul Bonaparte died while Lord Cochrane was again making a tour of the islands, vainly trying to induce the inhabitants to provide him with adequate means for a formidable attack on the enemy. Quote, in the port of Spetsas, wrote one of his officers on the 29th of August, there are now nearly 40 vessels, none of them ready, not a man on board. All the men are out in cruisers, notwithstanding His Excellency's order, to fit out their vessels to meet the enemy's fleet. But such are the Greeks, they have no foresight, and until they see the enemy, they will make no preparations, nor will they, unless the money is in their hands, expend a dollar to prepare a single fire-ship to defend their country. It is now twenty-eight days since Lord Cochrane ordered the vessels from Hydra, Spetsas, and Aegina to be prepared, and they are not yet ready. End quote. At length, on the 5th of September, Lord Cochrane was able, though still with difficulty, to resign the irksome and extra-official duties of a tax-gatherer that had been forced upon him. Quote, since my return from Zante, and indeed since my return from Alexandria, he wrote on that day to the government, now lodged at Aegina, I have been using my utmost endeavours to procure the equipment of a dozen brigs and as many fire-ships. The delays occasioned, however, by the want of pecuniary means, have hitherto prevented the realisation of my wishes, and the services of this frigate have been lost to the state during the aforementioned period owing to the impossibility of procuring the necessary funds without my personal presence at Syra and elsewhere. The equipment of the brigs and part of the fireships is now completed in spite of all difficulties, and I shall not delay one moment the endeavour to effect something useful to the interests of the state. I think it proper, however, to intimate to your excellencies that everything being paid relative to the expense of the present expedition, I know of no means whereby a single vessel can be maintained during the ensuing month. On the 7th of September, Lord Cochrane was able to start on another warlike cruise. His force comprised the Hellas, the Caterina, the Savior, and 19 or 20 other vessels. The Spetsiates and the Hydriots at the last moment refused to aid him, but he was attended by Mialis, Canarchus, and Sacatores, the three best of the native admirals. After a brief visit to Candia, where he encouraged the garrison of Gabrusa to hold out against the enemy, he again passed round the Maria, in which direction he desired to attain two important objects. The first was to injure as much as possible the Turkish and Egyptian vessels collected near Navarino. The second was to cooperate with the wretched force that under General Church had for three months past been making a show of resistance to the enemy at Corinth, and with its help to try and stir up the natives of Albania and western Greece. These objects partially prevented in other ways were nearly averted by a barbarous plot for Lord Cochrane's assassination. While halting off the southern coast of the Maria, on or near the 10th of September, a short, thick-built Greek with an ugly countenance and determined eye came on board the Hellas and asked for employment as a sailor. He was examined and rejected on the grounds of previous misconduct. Instead of going on shore again, however, he contrived to hide himself among the crew and was not detected by Lord Cochrane for several hours, and when the frigate was in full sail. In the interval, Lord Cochrane had received authentic information that this man had been commissioned by Ibrahim Pasha to attempt his life. There would have been justification for his immediate arrest and after court-martial for his summary execution, but Lord Cochrane pursued a more generous policy. Looking up to his secretary, Mr. George Cochrane, he said, quote, Observe that man who is at the gangway on the larboard side. 
I have just had information that he has been sent by Ibrahim Pasha to assassinate me. Go quietly below, put on your sword, and watch while he is on board. Mr. Cochrane obeyed his instructions. Quote, in less than five minutes, he says, I was again on deck with my sword. I took a few turns on the quarter-deck with his lordship, and then placed myself in a convenient position, about a dozen yards from the man. I did not lose sight of him for a couple of hours, keeping my eyes steadily upon him. He soon observed that I was watching him, and I could perceive that he did not feel very comfortable in his mind. He did not attempt to come aft. Had he done so, I should have drawn my sword. After the men had their dinner, one or two boats were got ready to convey seamen on board another vessel, and this fellow, seeing that his intentions were discovered, took advantage of the opportunity and got into one of the boats. I looked over the side of the Hellas and saw him depart. Thus Lord Cochrane's life was saved. Navarino was passed on the 11th of September. Lord Cochrane made no halt, as he saw that a British squadron under Sir Edward Codrington was there watching the Ottoman fleet and forbidding its aggress. He accordingly at once proceeded northwards and entered the Gulf of Patras on the 17th of September. On that day, in anticipation of the visit which he proposed to pay them, he forwarded proclamations to the inhabitants of the western coast. Quote, People of Albania, he wrote in one of them, although you have so long suffered under the Mussulman yoke, although your love of liberty has been so long kept down by a dark and cruel despotism, the hour of your deliverance is not distant and if you will, you can hasten it. Europe takes a lively interest in your destiny. Your fellow countrymen are hastening to aid you, but all depends on the energy which you yourselves display. The support which we offer you to be efficacious requires on your part redoubled zeal and patriotism in the actual and decisive moment. Brave Albanians, your happy future, the security of your families, and the honour of your religion are in your hands. Your bold and steady cooperation will ensure your own salvation and our success. The intended expedition was prevented. It had been arranged that Lord Cochrane should wait near Cape Papas for the arrival of General Church's army and convey it to Western Greece in the hope of putting it in better service in that region. But the land force was long in coming, and before it arrived, Lord Cochrane had to write to the government, explaining his most recent movement and the reasons which compelled him to abandon the project of fighting in Albania. Quote, having proceeded to the Gulf of Patras, he said, in order to cooperate with General Church in his intended expedition to Western Greece, I thought it would be conducive to the public service to invest the fort of Vassaladi until, by the arrival of the forces of the General, more important operations could be undertaken, and so, accordingly, the island was immediately blockaded by the boats of the squadron, and now continues surrounded by the vessels belonging to the Missolongites, who have undertaken to maintain the blockade until it shall surrender. The Katerina, the Savoir, and two of the gunboats were immediately detached with orders to take or destroy all the enemy's vessels within the Gulf of Lepanto, whilst the Hellas went to the anchorage of Calamos in order to ascertain from the officers in arms what prospect there was of general cooperation, and I regret to say that the want of union among the chiefs and the prospect of some kind of accommodation with the enemy seemed to paralyse all energies. I therefore detached all the squadron under Admiral Mialis to Syra and Naxos to aid the Candiots and Chiots, should they continue inclined to assert their independence. I have to add that I received an indirect communication from the British Admiral, intimating his desire that no new or further operations should be undertaken in that quarter, for which reason I am about to proceed elsewhere, under the impression that nothing should be left undone to stir up the population of Greece to a sense of their duty to themselves and their country." 
The communication referred to was by Lord Ingestree, commander of the Philomel, who hailed the Hellas on the 27th of September to deliver a message from Sir Edward Codrington. Quote, Whereas I am informed by Sir Frederick Adam, wrote the English admiral, that Lord Cochrane with the Greek fleet is about to embark the army of General Church in the neighbourhood of Cape Pappas for the purpose of conveying them to the coast of Albania, you are hereby directed to make known to the commander of that expedition that I consider it my duty in the present state of affairs to prevent such a measure being carried into execution, and that I shall shortly present myself in that neighbourhood for that purpose. End quote. Lord Cochrane knew that if it would be personally distasteful to him to be in collision with the naval force of his own country, it would, on public grounds and in the interests of Greek independence, be wholly inexcusable for him to act in violation of Sir Edward Codrington's message. Therefore he complied with it and went back to the archipelago there to do other work, while England was serving Greece in her own way. The service was to be rendered at last. After spending a year in diplomatic formalities, Great Britain and Russia had, in the spring of 1827, openly renewed their arguments with the port in favour of Greek independence. These arguments having been rejected, the two Christian powers were in consultation as to the next course to be pursued when France, partly urged thereunto by her schemes for the acquisition of Algiers, then a Turkish dependency, offered to take part in the defence of Greece. The result was a treaty signed in London on behalf of the three states, and on the 6th of July, having for its object the enforcement of the St. Petersburg Protocol of the 4th of April, 1826. It insisted that Greece should have internal freedom, though under vassalage to Turkey, and provided that, if the contending parties did not agree to an armistice within a month, there should be a forcible intervention. The Greeks welcomed the proposals made to them in consequence of this treaty, but they were rejected by the Turkish government, notwithstanding the appearance of English, French, and Russian warships, in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Rashid Pasha and Ibrahim continued their efforts to bring the whole insurgent district into thorough subjection, and accordingly the patriotic Greeks and their foreign supporters continued to act on the defensive. Lord Cochrane and a few others, indeed, were eager to secure action bolder than ever, considering that when the settling time arrived, the limits of independent Greece would be augmented if a larger area was then the scene of zealous opposition to the Turkish power. This it was that chiefly induced the efforts to quicken the revolt in Albania, and when Lord Cochrane was prevented by Sir Edward Codrington from persevering in his work in that quarter, he lost no time in sailing round to the eastern side of Greece, there to do his utmost towards rousing the people of Candia and other islands into an assertion of their independence, in order that they too might have a claim to be included in the liberation of the Greeks. The message from Sir Edward Codrington to Lord Cochrane, which has been quoted, was dated the 25th of September. It was written immediately after an interview of the English commander and Admiral de Rigny, who was in charge of the French squadron, with Ibrahim Pasha. To him they had formally announced that they were instructed to insist upon a cessation of hostilities, and that they should promptly act upon their instructions. Ibrahim answered that he had had orders from the Sultan to continue the war, but he promised to communicate with his sovereign, and pledged himself to abstain from hostilities until the answer arrived, and was reported to the Allied fleets. Before the answer came, a fortunate series of accidents, arising out of Lord Cochrane's expedition to the Albanian coast, turned the current of diplomacy and secured for Greece more freedom than had been anticipated. Lord Cochrane, attended by his Greek vessels, had left the neighbourhood of Cape Pappas on the 27th of September, but though deeming himself bound in honour to that course, 
he was willing to allow a part of his force to remain in the neighbourhood and watch the progress of events, especially as that part was at that time separated from him and lying in the Gulf of Lepanto. It consisted of the Caterina under Captain Abney Hastings, the Savoir under Captain Thomas, and two gunboats each mounting a 32-pounder. For a week this little squadron, ignorant of the arrangement between the Allied Admirals and Ibrahim Pasha, watched a Turkish force that was moored in Scala of Salona, and comprised one large Algerine schooner, carrying twenty brass guns, a brig of fourteen guns, six smaller brigs and schooners, two gunboats, and two armed transports. These vessels were protected by batteries on the level shore, and other batteries on overhanging rocks. On the 30th of September, Captain Hastings and Thomas proceeded to attack them, and did so with excellent effect. The solid shot of the Savoir and the gunboats soon silenced the batteries, the red-hot shells of the Caterina made havoc of the enemy's vessels, four being defeated within half an hour. Soon the Savoir and the gunboats joined in the attack on the shipping, and in the end seven vessels were destroyed and three captured. The news of that victory, as soon as it was conveyed to Navarino, where nearly all the naval force of the Turks was lying, roused the anger of Ibrahim Pasha, who complained that the Allied powers, while binding him to an action, allowed the Greeks to carry on the war. On the 1st of October, he sent out 30 warships with orders to enter the Gulf of Lepanto and punish Hastings and Thomas for their recent exploits. Sir Edward Codrington, however, pursued them and drove them back to Navarino. Ibrahim Pasha, not easily to be baffled, himself left Navarino on the evening of the 3rd with 14 of his stoutest vessels. Again, Sir Edward Codrington gave chase, and this second squadron also was compelled by him to return to port. Ibrahim Pasha, however, was not to be robbed of his revenge. He dared not leave Navarino by sea, but he sent thence a land force which marched up the northern side of the Maria and did serious mischief to the worn-out fragment of an army which General Church was slowly conducting from Corinth to Papas, there to be embarked for Albania. Only by the unlooked-for valour of young Colocatrones and his section was the rout of the whole army averted, nor was Ibrahim satisfied with this act of retaliation. His troops scoured all the adjoining country, burning villages and laying waste the olive groves and fig gardens, which were the only source of subsistence to the luckless natives. Thereby Sir Edward Codrington and his allies were in turn incensed. They decided that the time had come for direct interference in the struggle and for the expulsion of the Ottoman forces from the Maria. In the afternoon of the 20th of October, five-and-twenty line of battleships, frigates, and sloops entered the Bay of Navarino. Ten of them were English, seven were French, and eight were Russian, and they carried in all 1,172 guns. 20,000 Ottoman troops watched them from the fortresses of Navarino and Sfacteria, and as they entered the harbour, they saw some 80 Turkish and Egyptian vessels, mounting about 2,000 guns, drawn up in the shape of a horseshoe to receive them. They had come only to threaten, but accident or design on the part of the enemy brought about a most momentous battle. A volley from the Ottomans began the fight, which was continued for four hours, with stolid energy on both sides. The English and French vessels, being foremost, carried on the chief contest with the enemy's shipping. The Russians had silenced the batteries before they could enter the harbour, but then their admiral, Count Hayden, did his full share of the deadly work. The fighting lasted till sunset, but by that time many of the enemy's hulks were in flames, and all through the night these flames spread from one vessel to another, till nearly all were destroyed. At daybreak only twenty-nine of the eighty were afloat, and six thousand or more Muslims had been slain 
burned or drowned many of the vessels of the allies were seriously damaged and of their crews a hundred and seventy-five men were killed and four hundred and fifty wounded that was the battle of navarino Quote, i have the honour to inform you wrote sir edward codrington to the greek government that according to the decision of my colleagues count hayden and rear admiral de rigny and myself the combined fleet entered this port at two o'clock on the twentieth that some ships of the Turco-Egyptian fleet first began a fire of musketry, and then fired cannon-shot, which led very shortly to a general battle, which lasted till dark, and that the consequence of this has been the destruction of the whole of the Turkish fleet, except a few corvettes and brigs. Most of the ships of the Allied fleets have received so much injury that they must go into port. But if the Greek vessels of war are employed against their enemy, instead of destroying the commerce of the Allies they may henceforth easily obstruct the movements of any Turkish force by sea. End, quote. End of chapter 20. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Gold Coast, Australia.